Earlier this year, I was walking around Washington, D.C. with a group of men um, from the pastor's college and recent graduates along with the pastors of the church. Andrew Van Engen was kind enough to, to give us the proper treatment and gave us a tour all around Washington. And you know, as we were walking around, we found ourselves at one point near the office of the finance and treasury, uh, the, the building, the finance and treasury building. And one of the young men I was with said, you know, nobody recognizes the importance of what's going on behind those walls. You know, the streets were busy, cars were going up and down, and he said, people don't, you know, really recognize the, the importance of the decisions that are being made behind those walls. Everyone wants to see the Capitol building, everyone wants to see the White House, but nobody's lined up to go into that building. And the reason I say that is that there's a reality that I want to bring to our mind. And the reality is, is that when we gather here in the house of God, we are doing something that has immense importance. There may not be a line out the door to see what's going on here, in here, but like in a, in a far greater way than the treasury building, when we come to worship, we're doing something that's immensely important. We're engaging in something that is of life and death. And it's my prayer that as I preach, I will preach as one who has this reality in mind. It's also my prayer that as we gather here, that you would gather here with these realities at the front of your mind. So even as we enjoy each other and enjoy the goodness of God and laugh, um, it's not devoid of the serious nature of which we, we have gathered here to observe. And so I'd ask that you, you pray for me too as I'm preaching that, that God would allow me to do this. And I want to acknowledge that it's been on my mind this week. We've been in a year where we have seen a lot of those that we love die. I think in the last 12 months we've had more death in this church than probably in the last 12 years. And it, it is certainly on my mind as well that we have a number of people here that I love and we love that have illnesses that doctors may say are terminal. And that's a hard thing, and we're praying to God for his mercy and for his deliverance and for an elongation of life. But we need to recognize that at this time, God is confronting our own mor mor mortality, our own finiteness in our minds. And he's giving us an opportunity to turn to life and to hope. So as we hear the word of God, we need to recognize that despite whatever we go through in this life and the sufferings, he has given us immense hope and the offering of a life that goes far beyond this momentary, this momentary one, that goes far beyond an affliction that you may feel in your body right now. So if you're sick, I love you very much. We're praying, but let's go to hope. Let's go to the Bible with hope this morning and every week. This morning we we have a wonderful account that should be dear to all of us, um, to every Christian. It's sort of a famous first. What do I mean by a famous first? Well, there are people in our culture that are known by you just because they were the first to achieve something or to do something. So who might you think of if you were to think of somebody on this list? Well, maybe somebody generic. All, the, all of mine are generic. I'm going for you know, people that everyone knows, like 
Christopher Columbus, which I know he wasn't the first one to find America, but he was the first sort of a major European explorer to find the Americas. Most of us have heard of him. If you've been through junior high, you probably read about a man named Ferdinand Magellan who was the first to circumnavigate the globe. And if it's been a long time since junior high, you've probably forgotten that. Uh, you know, Neil Armstrong, you know, the first to be put on the moon. And Neil, uh, was it 69? Yeah, okay. Obviously, I wasn't alive. If you were alive in 1969, you remember that America was the, the first country to, to put a man on the moon. It was a race, and, and there was competition, and, and we put Neil on the moon. And if you were alive at the time, you probably remember that there's, there was probably this upsurging of American pride, like, yeah, we did it. Like, we're with Neil, you know? We do this in our own lives as well, you know, in, in little ways. Maybe, maybe your son or daughter is the first one to ever go to college, and there's this sense of pride being related or attached to them, like, yeah, hey, we, this is our son or our daughter. It, it, this idea of, like, being connected to a, somebody who does something for the first time and taking some sort of pride in that is natural, and so it happens in big, famous ways, and it happens in little, everyday, small ways. You know, how many have you, times have you been told by a parent, like, hey, my kid just walked for the first time this past week. Isn't that amazing? And it is for them. It's the first, right? So it happens in all sorts of ways. This morning, I want to look at a, a famous first in the Bible. And it's a man named Cornelius. He's a Roman centurion. Do you know anything about him? Do you know in what sense he was the first? Do you feel any connection to him? Well, you should, and I hope to illustrate why this morning. As we will see, Acts presents Cornelius as the first Gentile to become a Christian. And we read about him in Acts chapter 10. We're not going to read the whole chapter right now, but I'd ask that you open your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 10. Please stand, and we'll read together. Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through 6. Now there was a man at at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all of his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had come in and said to him, Cornelius, and fixing his gaze on him, And being much alarmed, he said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispense some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that you would illuminate your word and that you would send your Holy Spirit to each one of us as you did to the home of Cornelius on this day that we've read about. May each one of us be found faithful to Christ as we stand before him. May this reality of standing before him be the guide to our lives. May it be the principal reality of our lives. 
There's so much that distracts and diverts our attention. And so whatever those things are this morning, we pray that you would remove them and may the words and thoughts of my lips and heart and all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight and may they glorify Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I read the first six, cha- six verses of chapter 10 this morning in Acts. We're going to be reading a little bit from the end of the chapter later on this morning. And this chapter is about Cornelius, but it's about many more things than just Cornelius. It has some really big, important realities for us as Christians, and we couldn't begin to cover them in one Sunday, and we won't cover them in two Sundays. But what I want to say is that um, later this fall, on the 10th, so the week that, uh, the, week that can't, the week that truth and life begins, we're going to conclude this series that we've been doing over the summer, and Lord willing, we're going to start on the 17th, the study of the book of Acts. So that's where we're going, um, and we're going to be able to spend more time in Acts chapter 10 this fall or, or in the spring whenever we get to it. So this is not our last time we're going to be reading about this man and talking about him and looking at Acts chapter 10, all right? As I've already mentioned, Cornelius was a Gentile. Now, what's a Gentile? Well, a Gentile is somebody who's not Jewish. If you know the Bible, you recall that God's chosen people were the Israelites. He had called a particular people, and it was the Jews, And there were many, some of whom we've already talked about this summer, that were not Jews that came into Israel. We've talked about Ruth and Rahab this summer. They were both non-Jews that came into the nation and assimilated into Israel. And so you have many people throughout the Old Testament that aren't born Jews, but they are assimilated, grafted in, brought in to the nation of Israel. But... The fact that that happened, the fact that Ruth, the Moabitess, is in the line of Christ and was, you know, was a a close relative of David, does not mean that the Moabites, of which she was born, were God's people. You recognize the distinction I'm making? The Moabites were not God's people, it was Israel. Many non-Israelites came in to Israel over the course of the Old Testament, but it didn't make Moabites God's special people. All right, you with me? It was the Jews. All those outside of Israel were Gentiles. They were, they were pagan people. They did not know the one true God. And at this point in the New Testament, no Orthodox Jew would enter the home of a Gentile, nor would they invite a Gentile into their home. Historians record of this time that all familiar intercourse with Gentiles was forbidden, and no pious Jew would, of course, sat down at the table of a Gentile. We, it, when we study this chapter later this fall or whenever we get to it, we'll see that even Peter is in agreement with these statements. He's, this is part of what Peter learns in Acts chapter 10, that God is against no repentant sinner who fears the Lord, no matter where they're born. So what takes place in this chapter is a radical shift for Peter the apostle, and it's here that he realizes the implications that were made thousands of years ago 
way back in Genesis to Abraham, the forefather of our faith, that through you, Abraham, all the world would be blessed. A promise that found its fulfillment in Jesus being born in Abraham's line and not just that, but dying on the cross, not just for the Jews, but for the sins of the whole world. Dying for a Roman centurion. Dying for you. We'll speak more about these things again as we study Acts. But we need to recognize, just at the forefront, that Cornelius' salvation, his receiving of the Holy Spirit, his being baptized into the, the church, is a wonderful, exciting thing for you and I because in, in it happening to him, it happens to us as well. If it wouldn't have been able to happen to him, it wouldn't have been able to happen to us as well. But God has torn down the dividing wall between the Jews and the rest of the world, and we see the message of the gospel and Christ's love going out to all. And this morning in Acts chapter 10, we see a man who's the first one to, to come into contact with this love in the New Testament in the ways in which we've been speaking about it. So what can we learn from this passage about how this happened in the life of Cornelius? In verse 2, if you have your Bible, you can look there, or if you can put it back on the screen, that would be fine too. In verse 2, there are three verbs that are used to describe Cornelius' pursuit of God. Cornelius was a devout man who, one, feared God with all his household, and two, gave many alms to the Jewish people, and three, prayed to God continually. Three verbs describing the actions of his life. He feared God, he gave alms, he prayed to God continually. So the first thing is he fears God. He's a God-fearer. This is exactly what it sounds like. Don't overthink it. He recognizes the holiness of God and the great disparity between God's holiness and his sinfulness, his God's perfection, and his lack of perfection. And he knows in his mind, because of God's mysterious work creating the ability to have these sort of revelations, that there is, in fact, a very real judgment coming that he's going to give an account for the things that he's done. There are people here who have fought in the military and who bear a burden about things that they did while they were in the military, things that they were maybe required to do or things that maybe they did voluntarily. And they bear a burden, and they wonder if God can forgive them. Cornelius is a Roman centurion, an officer over 80 or 100 people. Perhaps he too bears a burden about the things that he's done or seen or witnessed, and he carries those things through life. And he recognizes that there is justice in the world. There is right and wrong, and those that do wrong give an account. And he has a burden. Will God have him? Will God drive him away? He recognizes that he needs something beyond what he himself can do. Those who fear God are those who are humble and who recognize that there is a reckoning to come. Now, many things in life can cause us to fear God. Maybe it was something that he saw or he did. In your life, perhaps it's the same, or perhaps it's because you 
are racked with some sort of sickness or illness. Or perhaps it's because you've lost somebody that you love dearly. Or perhaps it's because God has just given you the humility to recognize in some fashion, in some way, through some circumstance that you and I are not the unstoppable, all-powerful beings that we like to think that we are. And when that happens and suddenly our bubble is popped and we have a small view of ourselves and when God is big, he is feared. It's natural. We see his power. We see our smallness. And, and fear is a natural, a natural thing. Remember that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Cornelius knows in his heart that there is a day of reckoning ahead for him and that he better be right with God in, in some way. And so he's approaching God as he knows how. He's a God-fearer. Next, we're told that he gives many alms to the Jewish people. Well, what's an alm? Giving alms, an alm is, is nothing. But what is giving alms? It's giving money as an act of kindness. It's being charitable. It's being generous. That's it. He gave alms to the Jewish people. Remember, he gave alms to the Jewish people, but when God came to him, in the verses we read, what did God say? God said that your alms have ascended to me before me. Jesus makes no distinction between the way that you treat God or approach him and the way you treat those that are around you. In fact, the Bible says many things like if you claim that you love your brother but you claim that you love God but you, you don't love your brother, you hate your brother, then you're a liar. It's not true. You don't love God. If you don't love the person, he's, the people he's put around you, you can't claim to love God. He says that on the great and final day of judgment, Jesus says that many will come to him and, and he will cast them out and they'll be confused and say, Lord, when didn't we ever have your back? When didn't we clothe you or feed you or do something for you? I, I can't really recall a time. And he says, well, to the extent that you failed to do it to those that were around you, to your brother, you failed to do it to me. Jesus never makes a distinction between the way we treat those that are placed around us and the way we treat God. So Cornelius feared God. He wanted to be right with God. He knew that to be right with God, he must love other people the, the way he loves himself. He could have read that in the, in the Old Testament. And he must know that he can't love God and money. That was a pretty a persistent message in the Old Testament too. And so he's generous and he gives to the Jews. And the Jews love him for it. Later in this chapter, it says, the entire nation of Jews loves this man. Finally, we are told that he prayed to God. And not just that he prayed to God, but that he was continuous in prayer to God. The Bible says, pray without ceasing. And we think that that is, that must be hyperbolic. Because how can you do that? Because God says we need to be responsible. And how can you be responsible and work a job if you're praying? You know, you make these constructs in your mind. But here we're told that this God-fearer, who was a Roman, prayed continually to the God of the Jews. He wanted to have a relationship with Christ. So he feared, he gave alms, he prayed. And one day as he was doing this, something happens, and that's what we already read in our passage. I just want to reread verses 3 and 4. About the ninth hour of a particular day on which he was doing these things, of which he was used to doing. He clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius. 
and fixing his gaze on him and being much afraid. He said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. God is saying to him, you have gotten my attention. I've taken notice of you. What is the result of the prayers and the alms before God? He tells Cornelius to send for a man named Peter. He doesn't tell Cornelius everything about what Christ had done. Instead, he says, you know what? Send for a man named Peter who lives in Joppa with another guy named Peter, Simon, and call for him. He's got a message for you. And when Peter comes, this is what happens. So we're skipping 30, nearly 30 verses to the end. But Peter comes back to Cornelius and listen to what Peter says to this man. This is God's message through Peter to Cornelius, a Roman Gentile who is wanting peace with God, who's wanting a relationship with God and doing what he can do to pursue it. Opening his mouth, Peter said to Cornelius, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him, God, and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all of Judea, starting from Galilee, after the baptism which John proclaimed. And so now he's starting to, to preach and teach the gospel about Jesus to Cornelius. And he says, you've heard of some of these things, Cornelius. You've been around the Jews. You know what's been going on for the last few years. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good things and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. We are witnesses of all these things he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is, to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. Peter's saying, I haven't just heard this, I've seen it. I ate with him, I drank with him. And then he says, and he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. And we see here something incredible happen because Cornelius knew that God would judge him, but what he didn't know is that God had made Jesus Christ his judge. And what he also didn't seem to recognize is that Jesus Christ was willing and ready to forgive his sins to all those who put their faith and trust in him. It was not a matter of appeasing God. It was a matter of believing in God. And at this moment, it says in verse 44, while Peter was still speaking this, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers, all the Jewish converts to Christianity, who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speak with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, 
Surely no one can refuse the water for these bap- to be baptized to have received the Spirit just as we did, can we? He's saying, no, God, we've seen it. God has already baptized these people. <laughs> can I deny them that? So he hurries up and, and baptizes these that have just received the Holy Spirit. And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and they asked him to stay for a few days. It's a wonderful passage, a wonderful and a powerful story. So Cornelius feared God, he gave alms, and he prayed. And the result of those things was the angel of the Lord appeared to him. The apostle Peter came to his house and preached to him about the work of Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit was given, and they were baptized and brought into the church. And so I want to take the remainder of the time that we have, and I want to say, what can we learn from this passage? How can this picture of salvation spur us on? And there are three things that I I want you to take away from what we've read about Cornelius this morning. Three things that are necessary for anyone who wants to come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Was Cornelius a Jew? No. Did he know lots about God in a personal manner? Well, he certainly knew the basics of what God required. He was certainly familiar with Jewish worship and, and teaching. But he also, he didn't read this part. When Peter first appeared, he tries to bow down and worship Peter as a god. And so what we recognize here is that there are things that are very important that Cornelius still has to learn. He's heard about Jesus' ministry, but he doesn't seem to have recognized that Jesus has been made Lord of all by God the Father. He's, he likely thought that he needed to appease God But Peter has told him that it's not about appeasing God. It's about receiving Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Of him the prophets bear witness so that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. What we see clearly is that Cornelius, whatever he might have known or not known before this interaction, Cornelius genuinely sincerely was seeking God by doing what he knew how to do. None of us can deny that. We see it. Was it complete? No. Was it totally informed and educated? No. But it was sincere. He had a desire to be devout toward the God of Israel, and so he got started. I've had the privilege of speaking with some of you over the past few weeks who are very Uh, similar to Cornelius at this point. You may or may not be a Christian right now. You may be a young Christian. You have a sense that God is real. You know that you need to be in a right standing with him, but you don't really know what it looks like. You don't know how to pursue it. You may be intimidated by the Bible. You don't know if you're going to be able to understand what it says. You think that there's a great difference between you and the way you live and act and speak and some of the other people that you've ran into, and you don't know how to make sense of it. Now, my encouragement to you this morning is to do as Cornelius did, and so the first point is to just get started. Just start reading the Word of God. Tell God about your fears and the feelings of inadequacy that you may have. Press Him as Cornelius did, to reveal himself to you and to give you the gift of the Holy Spirit. Obey him in the ways that you know how and trust him to lead you. 
As most of you know, um, Aaliyah and I, my wife and I, are currently in a home that needs some work. Um, and one of the jobs that I put off and put off for months and then earlier this year decided I have to man up and tackle is crawling down in my, sump, uh, in my, in my crawl space and replacing my sump pump pit. And that's just an unenjoyable job. You know, you've got not a lot of room, you've got to crouch down, and you've got to dig up the dirt, and then underneath the dirt, you'll... F- How many of you guys have ever dug up a sump pump pit? It's like you don't know what I'm talking about. Okay, a couple of you. You've got to dig up the gravel, you've got to do something with it, and then as soon as you start removing the earth and the stone, what happens? Well, all the moisture from that dirt around there starts seeping into the sump pump pit and filling it with water and the walls start caving in and it's just like, I've done it multiple times in my life. It's really not a fun task. And so now every guy's like, yeah, I understand why you kept putting that off, bumping it to the next week's task list. But I decided to man up earlier this year and I was gonna go down there and dig up that stupid pit and uh, it wasn't nearly as hard as I thought it was gonna be. But I wanted my kids involved. And so I figured the best way to do this was to go on down there, start shoveling, and start filling all these five-gallon buckets that I got. And then we were going to have an assembly line of little kids so I didn't have to carry any of those buckets to the hole. And then I had other kids outside the hole lifting those buckets out and going and dumping them outside. And that's the way we were going to do it. I got all my kids. We started getting down there. And... Uh, Noah, who is three, really wanted to help. And it's cramped. I mean, it, the space is tight. And that's about the way I thought, felt at the time, too. Now, I was happy that he wanted to help, but he couldn't, you know, he couldn't really help. He couldn't lift the buckets. He didn't have the strength or the leverage to dig. He didn't really have anything to offer in that whole scenario, in that sweet setup I had devised in my mind. He didn't really have a place. But listen, his desire to help and to contribute made me very happy. So I might sigh in the moment, but the reality of my heart is that I'm so happy that my three-year-old wants to be a part of what we're doing, even though he has nothing to offer. I wasn't any less proud or less happy that Noah of Noah than I was with any of my other kids who were able to move buckets. He might be young, but it was his willing desire to be with and to help me that made me so happy. And I'm sure that if you're a parent or in another scenario in your life, you're able to identify with this sort of thing. People have done things for you that really aren't that helpful. But it's not the help that you appreciate. It's the thought. It's the love. It's the willingness to try. The same thing is true with God, our Heavenly Father. Cornelius is like Noah. He doesn't really know that much. There were things he needed to learn, ways he needed to grow, but the simple things that he did were precious to God. The alms and the prayers went up to to God as a memorial, and God was pleased with them, like I was pleased with Noah that day in the cross space. And so I want to say to those of you who maybe feel like you're in a position like Cornelius, get started. Get started. Let Cornelius push you. Pursue God. Read the Bible. Be generous with your money. Go out of your way to love your neighbor. Be faithful in being a part of the church. Wherever you need to start, just just start. Do it by faith, 
and trust that God will, one, be pleased with you, and two, that he'll bless you in your doing it and add his strength to you. Get started and pray that God would add his power. The idea of just getting started might seem like a simple enough thing, and yet many are kept from entering the kingdom of God because they perpetually delay. They're always putting it off, like I was always putting off that task of getting down in the crawl space. It's like exercise or dieting or digging a sump pump. It's never convenient, and there's always an excuse on a low shelf. Maybe the reason that you haven't gotten started in the past is that you fear not really knowing, fear not knowing or understanding what you're supposed to do. I think that's a pretty common thing. I've talked with a few of you recently who've started jobs, and you may like the job, but the thing that you've said is, I just don't understand like I know what I'm supposed to be doing. And that's not enjoyable. And we've all been there. But start. Maybe you fear looking foolish. You make comparisons. And you don't want to seem different than other people. But you ha- you're going to if you're actually going to get into it. It's like, I, I've thought about, like, I, I don't ever go to the gym. But I have been in the gym, and I remember in junior high, I started going into the weight room. And there was all sorts of stuff I, I didn't understand. Like, I don't understand, like, how to change the pulleys around and the levers on the, on the, on the, on the units. Like, I don't understand the correct technique. Um, I didn't understand a lot of things, but I felt like everyone else did, and everyone else was looking down on me. I didn't understand why the big fat guys doing the bench were always like, why is everyone screaming? I don't feel like I need to scream, you know? And so you make comparisons between you and other people. And sometimes it can send you out of the weight room. Sometimes it can keep you from ever getting started because you just don't want to look like you don't know what you're doing. And that's really ultimately pride. So that's not a good reason. We can't let that stop us. Maybe you fear getting started because you, you, you have a sense for what you might lose. The reality is, is that when you, when you embrace Jesus Christ, um, when you grab hold of him, you, you let go of certain things, don't you? There are other things that you do let go of, the things that you once cared so much about. If, if Christ demands that you care about him more than everything else, which is what you know, God is, like what is God if he's not what you care about most, <laughs> the most important thing in your entire life, Like, there are things that once held importance that you're going to let go of. And when you do that, that's going to have ramifications. It may be that suddenly some of your old friends don't feel like they have any sort of commonality with you anymore. Like, dude, what's up? We used to go to the boat every weekend to fish, and now you don't ever want to come out with me. Like, this happens. This is common. This is just part of what being a Christian is, like following Christ. I had dear friends in small group last year who said, like, we are still friends with a lot of our old folks, but we don't really spend the time. The friendship feels very different because we don't do a lot of the things we once did with them because now we recognize that like, those things weren't nearly as important. Our value in life used to come from doing those things, and now we recognize that our value isn't found there. Our value is in something completely different. So maybe you fear losing something or having somebody be angry at you because you, you think that going to church is more important than going to the lake. Those things happen. And Christ calls you to start and to endure embracing him. And, and maybe you're afraid that, of what you might lose, but that can't be a good reason to not start. Maybe you aren't starting because 
you're waiting until you can do something big. It's like, like going to the weight room, like who goes to the weight room and starts with like 325 doing 10 reps on the bench? You know, like, yeah, I want to be a part of the 300 club day one. It's foolish, you know, you're going to be going there and putting maybe 245s on. I've seen men with a bar only. And if that's you, Alec, you got to start somewhere. You got to start somewhere. If you're wanting to do something big, uh, again, it's, 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 a, it's pride that's going to keep you from ever getting started. You have to go in and start with the bar if, if that's where you're at. And that's where we really all are at with God. We just need to get started. He doesn't need you to be great. God is great. You don't need to do anything great. You just need to present yourself to him and, and worship him as great. That's, that's what he calls you to do. So get started where you're at. That's the first thing. Pursue God in faith means that, uh, with, I'm sorry, pursue God in the means that are available to you. Just do it sincerely, simply, honestly. God doesn't need or want sophistication. He says that we need to come to him like little children. So we just need to seek him. That's first. Second, the second thing we learn from Cornelius is that you need to be persistent. If we think about Cornelius, what we see is that he was drawn to God, the God of Israel, over against all of the, the, the deities, the gods, the cult rituals, the pagan sacrifices that he would have grown up seeing in Rome. If you know history, you know the Romans had lots of gods. It was like the God buffet, the golden corral of gods. And you could go and heap pretty much any combination onto your plate, any combination that suited your own appetite, right? And that was the problem. False gods are always the things that actually serve our own appetite. And God is like, you know, I'm not going to use an analogy about, well, I won't go there because it's not respectful. But like God is is not about serving your own appetite. He's about fulfilling you, but it's not going to be the cheap yeast bread rolls that you all want when you go to Golden Corral. He's going to give you what you need. He's actually going to fulfill, fill you with living water. But it's, but, so Cornelius was a part of these pagan societies with lots of gods. He, he, he gives those up because he sees something in the God of the Jews that he knows he needs, he wants. And there are two words to describe the way that he pursued his desire to be known by God. Two things, verse two again, listen, it says, Cornelius was a devout man, one who feared God with his household, he gave many alms, and he prayed to God, then it says continually. So I, I highlight devout and continually. Those two words jumped out at me. Devout means just being committed to a cause, and we're told that he prayed to God continually. So these ideas, these things are tied. There's a, a common thread between these, these words, these descriptions. Both of these Descriptor words cause us to draw the conclusion that Cornelius was not just throwing up like a Hail Mary prayer in desperation. That's not what's going on. He desires to know God and he prays to him continually. He's devout in his convictions. He's devout in his giving money away. He, he's, he's committed to it. Is that the way you pursue God? Jesus promises that those who seek him will find him and those who knock, the door will be opened to him. Those are Jesus' words. However, in this story and in many other places in the Bible, the idea of persistence shows up. Notice that Cornelius had already developed a good reputation with the entire nation of the Jews before God showed up in a dream to him. Do you recognize that? He was living this way before he got that special message. 
Before he saw a visible being stand before him and before he was told, go hear these audible words from Peter, he was devout. He persisted. This means that there were a lot of prayers that didn't get a vision or that didn't get the response from God like we see in our passage. But he did not stop. He did not give up. Now, why would Jesus want you to be persistent in following him? Is he teasing you? Is he playing games? Is he like us, as some of us as parents, not paying attention so that, the, you know, your kid has to ask you six times before you recognize he's talking to you? Is that, is that, is that God? Is that Jesus? No. The reason Jesus wants you to be persistent is that he wants you to want him more than anything else in the entire world. Recently, I was walking through Kroger with my kids, and I was just grabbing a few things, and I had my, the younger kids with me, and I found myself in a very dangerous position. And that position was the toy aisle at the back right corner of the store. I was told to go to the manager's markdown, asked to go to the manager's markdown, and that's just beyond it. So I had to walk through the valley with my children. And as I walked through that toy aisle, what happened? One of my kids latched onto a specific toy and was like, oh, my birthday's coming up. I'd really like this. And then it didn't stop there. It was like, and here's why I'd like it, because I've got this set, and it goes with this and this, and this guy is the thing, and you get this with this guy, and, and look at this. This is, more, this is what I want so much. And I say, okay, you know, and I'm walking through the aisle, and I get to the end of that particular aisle, and all of a sudden, something changed. That same child was looking at me, and as they watched me, their eyes glazed over another item. And they suddenly put that item back on the shelf. And they ran down to me. Oh, look at this. This is what I want. Most of all, this is what I want for my birthday. And I want it. It, it, That happened. And if you're a parent, you probably can sympathize with a story like that. Now, why do I share that? I, I share that because often that can be the way we approach God. And he won't have it. That's not the kind of thing. He's not desperate. He's not desperate. He wants you to want him more than anything else in the entire world. He doesn't want you to want him for five seconds. He doesn't want you to want him until you find something else that's shinier. He wants you and calls you to desire him more than anything else. That's why he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you up from the, out, of, out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. That's how much he wants you to want him. Be persistent in seeking him. He requires that we love him more than anything else. Finally, I want to say that God wants your whole life. He doesn't just want a check. He doesn't just want some almsgiving. He doesn't just want prayers. He wants your whole life. God appeared to Cornelius because his prayers and his alms had ascended before him. Those things were pleasing to him. It's easy to see how the sacrifice of giving away money, how, I'm sorry, how giving away money is a sacrifice. And actually, prayers are a sacrifice too because in prayer, we give things to the Lord. We give things away. We give something up to the Lord, whether it's our fears or whether it's our, our worries or it's our requests for his intervention in some circumstance and his, his working, whether it's a, a, a thanksgiving that we're giving to him and it says an, a sacrifice of praise, right? So even our praises are a, a sacrifice. And so what we see, even before Cornelius has God speak to him in this vision, is that he was making sacrifices to God in these areas. 
They were sacrifices. And God was working through them to bring him to new life. But after he received the Holy Spirit and he was baptized, it wasn't as if he had found what he was looking for and so he stopped and he moved on. He's like, wow, I, I'm glad I figured that one out. Now, I, you know, my, my, my journey is done. I found God. I have peace with God. I moved. That's, not, that's not at all the way he lived his life. He continued to keep on sacrificing. His, it was a sacrificial life that God desires. It's, so it may start in one area is what I'm trying to say. Your sacrifice may start in one particular area, and that's okay. Start. But as you go on, that doesn't stop. That grows. God says he wants our lives to be sacrifices to him. Remember what Peter says. He says, I certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears the Lord and does what is right is welcome to him. Offer yourselves to God, and he says that you are welcome to him. You are welcomed by God. And that's an incredible thought. You aren't welcomed by the president of our country. You don't have his ear. You don't have an invitation to one of his balls or banquets. You can't seek his help personally. He doesn't even know your name. And you'll likely not give an invitation to the White House. But what is impossible with man is, impos- is possible with God. And God has torn down the dividing walls that has kept us from him. But if you want Jesus to save your life, which is what he says he will do, you must surrender your life. Your life must be a sacrifice. If we are offering our lives, that means we're submitting every area. Not just Sunday morning, an hour on Sunday. Not just, you know, our Bible reading times. It's going to be the way we approach this word. It's also going to be the way that we dress. It's going to be the way that we speak. It's going to be what we listen to. Every area, every area of our lives will be changed by the reality that God commands you to lay your life down as a sacrifice. Noah I was happy with in the crawl space because he couldn't do anything, but he wanted to help me. If he was 15, the story would be different, right? Like if he still couldn't do anything at 15, I would sort of be disappointed. Likewise, God is calling you to a lifetime of sacrifice and desiring to serve him, not just a one-time offering. And so just to recap, I want you to get started. God's word says just start and be persistent and keep growing. Just because you make an offering over here in this area for life doesn't mean that God doesn't want this over here too. He wants it all. And as we love him and pursue him, he'll give us hearts that find it easier to make those sacrifices. So I want to just close tonight to this morning by reading a passage. I was reading this morning in the Bible and I read this passage in Psalm 37. And I want to close with it. It says, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him also and he will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as at the noonday. Let's pray.